Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life, that there's something wrong with the world. You don't know what it is, but it's there, like a splinter in your mind, driving you mad. It is this feeling that has brought you to me. Do you know what I'm talking about? Matrix. Do you want to know what it is? The Matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? That you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Hey everyone, Paul here. You're listening to part three in a series entitled Gods, Wizards, Witches, and the End of Secularity. Throughout this series, we've been talking about the cultural signposts that point to what I believe to be the inevitable end of secularity in the West. When we understand that cultures produce in their arts, their music, their theater, they produce doorways to the spirit of their cultural consciousness, we can begin to examine the evidence of these ever-evolving spirits, these ever-evolving values and ideas that are taking root in a culture. In America, a culture obsessed with telling stories, there are plenty of signs of dissatisfaction with the secular age in the mythological stories we tell in movies, television, and even comic books. So far, we've looked at a few examples of stories that demonstrate a growing cultural dissatisfaction with the new gods, these new gods that have rushed in to fill the supposedly religionless vacuum of our secular age. But today, we will look at one of the alternative paths to re-enchantment and meaning that people are considering as they move away from the secular myth. One trend that we can see manifest in our cultural stories is what I will call the red pill suspicion of imminence, or perhaps a more appropriate term might be neo-gnosticism. How do films like The Matrix and the popular Marvel series WandaVision and Loki show us signs of our cultural dissatisfaction with the secular age? 
My name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. This podcast is made possible because of the support of listeners just like you on Patreon. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to find out how you can get involved and get plugged in with things like discussion forums, monthly Zoom calls, group Patreon Zoom calls, and all sorts of other fun stuff. In the secular age, truth, goodness, and beauty were only to be found in what philosopher Charles Taylor called immunitization. What did Taylor mean by that term, immunitization? Immunitization is the slow process by which the West pulled a metaphorical lid over the sky and then closed ourselves off to the transcendent heavens. The movement in Western Civ from theism to deism to naturalism and its closed, cold material universe, it ended up shifting our gaze. It shifted our perspective. We shifted to having our eyes down in front of us. We began to focus solely on the world imminently in front of us, the world of our immediate sense experience. Now, there's a lot of goodness to be found in the imminent. Historically, Christians have believed in the imminence of God and the transcendence of God. But what if imminence is all that there is? And what happens? when the imminent alone leaves you dissatisfied? What if the emptiness of the imminent, untethered from the transcendent, leaves you so dissatisfied and empty that you begin to doubt whether or not there is truth to be found at all in the imminent? What if the cold naturalism of the secular age and its accompanying nihilism leaves you so starved for meaning that you begin to wonder whether or not the world of sense experience, the imminent world all around you, is just an illusion. What if following the white rabbit doesn't lead you down a rabbit hole of fantastical hallucination, as in the case of Alice in Wonderland, but instead... What if following the white rabbit led you to a secret knowledge about the world hidden from plain view, a world that had felt devoid of meaning because it is a world of sensory illusion? In the year 1999, a film was released that skyrocketed into the cultural zeitgeist, and not merely for its groundbreaking special effects, but because it was able to capture the sense of the meaning crisis of our secular age and to tell a story that many saw as a solution to the emptiness of immunitization. That movie was The Matrix. I remember the first time I saw The Matrix in theaters in high school, I was completely blown away. At the time, I, and actually, you know, I think there were quite a few Christians along with me, I actually thought that it was a Christian movie, but in hindsight, I realized that's because my own theology at the time was so mired in Gnosticism that I didn't even realize that the symbolism of the Matrix had far more in common with ancient Gnosticism than it did with Orthodox Christianity. Like Fight Club, which I believe we talked about in part two of this series, which was actually released that same year in 1999. So in 1999, both, the Fight Club, both Fight Club and The Matrix came out. 
Fight Club and The Matrix both played upon the growing dissatisfaction with the imminent frame of our secular age. Both of those stories centered around men who were trapped in meaning crisis. They were feeling the emptiness of their office jobs. They were haunted by a sense of more. You can see in both films this sort of muted green color filter whenever they're in the office, the, the, the bland earth tone suits and bare white walls in their offices where they work capture what Charles Taylor called the, the malaise of modernity, the malaise of our secular age, this, this malaise, this general slothful heaviness that characterizes so much of our daily experience. In the secular age, it just kind of weighs on us, but not a heavy, violent weight. Just a slow, uh, you know, you kind of get used to the weightiness of it. And in their own unique ways, both Fight Club and The Matrix proposed pathways for reenchantment. Both of them exposed some of the idols that even rushed in to fill the vacuum of the death of God. We talked about with Fight Club that one of the idols that Fight, Fight Club actually exposed in our supposedly religionless vacuum was it exposed the old god of greed, Mammon, and how empty and futile worshiping or giving your attention to the exaltation, the adoration, the giving of one's attention to that old god of greed, Mammon, how ultimately futile and empty it made the protagonist feel in Fight Club. That was one of the great things about that film. Sadly, I don't think it proposed a positive alternative, but it certainly exposed, it touched on this nerve, this nerve that I think especially Gen Xers, younger millennials felt as they were in adulthood or heading into adulthood, and they were making decisions, decisions about their life based on the narrative they had been told. A narrative, whether you were Christian or not, had a lot of mammon pursuit, mammon worshipped involved in it. So both of these movies, Fight Club and The Matrix, they expose that idol of mammon, right? They're giving your life away for, in the case of Fight Club, to, to have some nice furniture in your apartment. Neo feels this in The Matrix as well, and he's, he's haunted by a sense of more. It's even, for both of them, interfering with their job performance. But make no mistake about it, The Matrix was a Gnostic story. Now again, I, I'm not saying this, I'm not analyzing this film as the sort of maybe fundamentalist 80s, 90s youth pastor telling you don't watch The Matrix, it's a Gnostic movie. Instead, what I'm trying to do is actually say, no, this is a great movie. It's a great work of art. It highlights for us the spirit of a particular age. But I just want to highlight, you know, especially for many of us like myself, who felt that it was a Christian movie, that it had this um, harmony with the Christian narrative. And though there are degrees of harmony with it, this is the, the first Matrix movie was ultimately a Gnostic story with Gnostic symbolism. Remember that ancient Gnostics, and we talked about Gnosticism back in the Problem of Evil series. I believe that might have been, and you might have to look this up, it might have been part, maybe part two or three of the Problem of Evil series. So if you haven't listened to that series, go back, give that, that a listen. Remember when we went through and talked about Gnosticism, 
that the Gnostics saw the material world as the flawed creation of a wicked or broken demiurge. And this actually helped them to account for a lot of all the evil and suffering they saw in the world. In some ways, it was a maybe a therapeutic theodicy. This helped them, again, this narrative of the material world being the flawed creation of a wicked demiurge, it, it helped them account for the evil and suffering they saw in the world. And it allowed for there to be some sort of uh, theodicy that fit a vision of reality informed by the Platonic narrative, the Platonic narrative that proposed there was at the ground of, to borrow uh, language from you know, Paul Tillich, at the ground of being, at the level of ultimate reality, there is the one, which was the perfection of all being. And in the Platonic frame, the one is in some sense the center of all reality. It is the source of all reality. And as you move further away from the one, you see gradual degradations in truth, goodness, and beauty as you move away from the center. Of course, we see a lot of Platonic influence on the ethics and theology of Augustine and Origen, and we talked all about that in the, that Problem of Evil series. So in Gnosticism, if you're, if you're assuming the Platonic frame, the Gnostic goal ends up being to escape and transcend the evil material world. We want to return to the source. Then, you know, there's different variations of this. There's Neoplatonic thought. There's Platonic thought. You could even say there are Christian various, um, Christianized varieties or perhaps um, maybe Christian harmonization with what might be true about Platonic thought in the Eastern Orthodox idea of theosis. In Gnosticism, they play upon this idea that the goal of life is union with the one and inform an entire cosmology where a demiurge is responsible for the material world. So in Gnosticism, the goal then becomes to escape and transcend the evil material world to escape our physical bodies as they were only flawed vessels for our more divine pre-existent souls. This salvation from the broken material world comes about for Gnostics via secret wisdom, a, a wisdom that's hidden from plain sight. You know, follow the white rabbit, take the red pill, unplug from the matrix, and be set free from this world. Now, if you hear it set up like that, and it sounds like the Christian message to you, it may be that like myself some 20 years ago, you might be unaware at how much Gnosticism has creeped into contemporary American Christianity. Historic Orthodox Christianity from the beginning affirmed the created goodness of the material world, and we have to cling to this. This is central in all of our efforts of re-enchantment to break free from the immunitization to break free from the hegemonic control, uh, the, the overlording of our narratives with this, 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 this meta-narrative that says all there is is right in front of you, to break free from that does not require that we reject the created, the created goodness of the material world. That would not be historic Orthodox Christianity. That is something that I believe we must continue to cling to 
if we're going to find genuine reenchantment. So early Christians affirmed the created goodness of the material world. They started the story with that. They affirmed things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of those in Christ. The culmination of the Christian story is found in the union of heaven and earth via heaven's symbolic descent to earth in the form of a city. Read the end of Revelation, Revelation 21. This is a city that comes, the city of God. Heaven and earth become one. The dwelling place of God becomes the dwelling place of humanity and the created order. This is a union of heaven and earth. The good news was never, was never that if you believe some secret message of Jesus, your soul will be set free from the material world and relocated to a spiritual heaven when you die. I know that in some sense that actually sounds like the Christian message many of you inherited, but that was not the early Christian message. That has not been the witness of the apostles, the early church fathers. Some of this certainly crept into medieval theology, and then it really, this sort of Gnosticism, Gnostic revival has really, really reached its apex in operating within the material um, the material story within modernity. This is really where, because I just don't think we knew what to do with things like the resurrection of the body. There was no rapture theology uh, in the early church where like those faithful in Christ get beamed up out of the sinful world before things really start going to hell. No, that's never, never been the case. These are, that's the Gnostic Christian story, one that was deemed heretical and for good reasons. Jesus isn't like Neo, setting humans free from the world by giving them secret knowledge that allows them to unplug. No, Christ brings redemption, transformation. He brings renewal to that which is disordered in the world of flesh and blood. We see physical healings, physical resurrections, real flesh and blood, real let me cook you some fish on the beach kind of Savior. Now, again, I am not trying to demonize the Matrix film. I love that movie. But what I'm trying to point out is that the Matrix was one of the most influential movies of the past few decades. And whether intended or not, it became one of the primary reference points for people who may, fundal- who may fundamentally see the imminent world as evil. And I have sympathy for this response. When imminence alone leaves you empty, it's easy to consider the possibility, especially when one considers all the suffering of the world, that perhaps that emptiness is a sign of something malevolent, inherent to the imminent frame. I mean, I just heard uh, a recent interview with theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss. He did an interview with Jordan Peterson. I heard him say with full sincerity that all of our why questions are really just how questions. I can't think of a more appropriate example of why the myth of secularity and its fundamental commitment, this kind of dogmatic materialism, 
makes people want to escape the material world to find an, even an ounce of meaning or purpose when you are told there are really no why questions or that all of your why questions are actually how questions. Or in other words, you know what, buddy? Throw out philosophy. Throw out theology. There's only science. There's only explanations of mechanical processes. And those are the only answers out there. Of course, people are going to be dissatisfied with that sort of dogmatic scientism. They are going to be quickly and easily. I can't, I just can't for the life of me believe that Lawrence Krauss actually lives in that world. In fact, I think Paul Vanderclay did a, a breakdown of some of that conversation and he highlighted how later in the conversation, in the interview, that Lawrence Krauss talked about his his purpose in life and getting quite, uh, stating a belief in one's own purpose that they have a particular, almost calling in the world requires you to deal with questions of why. So when I hear people talk like that, and I, and I know that people, you know, the difference for me is that I, I never grew up completely and uh, completely submerged in the secular frame, especially being in charismatic Pentecostal settings, even though that was still, I think, the predominant cultural frame my own subculture inhabited, which made for some interesting tensions and back and forth. I am so sympathetic to those who want to red pill eminence and escape the matrix. I'm so sympathetic to those who hear stuff like from Lawrence Krauss or Richard Dawkins or Daniel Dennett, and, and they think that that imminence is an illusion if that's all there is. I'm sympathetic. I'm sympathetic to those who think that by red-pilling imminence, by escaping the matrix, they might be able to be like Neo and end up breaking the laws of physics, stopping in mid-flight a barrage of bullets or bending a spoon with their will, metaphorically speaking here. <laughs> or maybe in some cases, people actually do get to the point where they they believe they can do those sorts of things. That, that certainly is the case, I suppose. The problem is that by rejecting the inherent goodness of the material world and by believing that imminence is fundamentally malevolent, we become deeply suspicious of the reality we inhabit. And we begin to doubt the epistemological tools necessary for discerning what's true from what's false. More recently, we've seen thematic returns to the Matrix films, the, the way the Matrix films brought the viewer into an experience of questioning reality. We've seen these themes return in recent years. In particular, I want to take some time to talk about the way this thematic return, this red pilling of imminence, this imminent reality suspicion is becoming a growing popular trend in, in new pop culture zeitgeist stories like Marvel's series WandaVision and Loki. Marvel's WandaVision creatively explores questions of grief and loss. I think that's really at the core of the story, but the story is also set within this larger frame, again, of what we might call imminent reality suspicion 
And it does bring the viewer into an experience in which they might be led to question whether or not they need to red pill imminence, red pill the reality of their sense experience and rationality. In WandaVision, the Scarlet Witch, Wanda, has taken captive an entire town in a magic alternate reality. Similar to those trapped in the Matrix, those in the alternative reality bubble created by Wanda's magic are blindly unaware that they are living in an illusion, save for the few moments where, for various reasons, I won't get into all of them as part of the plot, for those few moments where Wanda's spell is lifted and they become aware that this world they are living in is not real. Marvel's Loki takes the imminent reality suspicion to a whole nother level beyond WandaVision by proposing that a hidden power impervious to magic, which I think is an interesting touch um, as they enter the world of the TVA, operating deep behind our observable layers of reality, that this hidden power has us all living in a fatalistic illusion. Again, another wicked demiurge behind our sense experiences of the world, similar to the Matrix. There's a running sort of Gnostic thread here. I think both of these shows are excellent on so many levels. I really enjoyed them. I think it's probably some of the better stuff that MCU, the, the you know, recent Disney Marvel um, products have, have put out on the big screen, or I guess in, the, in this case, the, the small screen. But there's no doubt that, in my mind, that a significant appeal to these shows, just like The Matrix, or I guess we could even bring up uh, Christopher Nolan's Inception as another example of this, a significant appeal to all of these shows is that they all provoke the viewer to question what is real. After all, why wouldn't you at least question your experience of reality if you've been swimming in a cultural narrative sea that could produce in a brilliant intellect like Lawrence Krauss the audacity to suggest that the why questions of philosophy and theology are all replaceable by the how questions of science. If you've been living in that, if you've actually followed naturalism to its logical conclusions and reached the emptiness, the void at the end of that journey, I can see why you would have suspicions of reality. <laughs> I can see why these stories appeal to us. There's, there's a profound question, and it's one that we do need to wrestle with. I'm not suggesting that these, these stories, that questioning imminence or questioning the totalizing experience of the imminent frame is not good. I'm not suggesting that. I actually obviously think that to be re-enchanted is to allow ourselves to be haunted in the imminent frame, to see that there is more beyond, that we are not just simply in and of ourselves these the product of material processes. And I talked a little bit about that in my last conversation with John Verveke. This isn't to deny the material world. That would be the difference between a sort of Gnostic theology and what I would say is a, a genuine Christian theology, which does lead to proper re-enchantment. 
Though in no way, shape, or form am I putting myself on the level of Nietzsche. That would be an incredible act of hubris. I do, in some sense, feel like Nietzsche going, you know, Nietzsche's day, he saw the death of Christendom, the death of God on the horizon, and uh, he felt a little bit like the madman. And I, in some sense, see secularism headed towards its inevitable demise, albeit recognizing I don't know when that will happen. And in some sense, I've wondered whether or not this series resonates with any of you or whether it's just way too far out there. (laughs) And that's okay. Some of you reached out with some encouraging comments that makes me think you're tracking as well. But I firmly believe that as we head towards the inevitable demise of secularism, that this red pill suspicion of imminence, this imminent reality suspicion is only going to increase. Now, I do find it interesting, and here comes some major Loki spoilers. If you haven't seen that series yet, spoiler alert, pause, maybe fast forward 45 seconds or so in this or come back to it when you're done watching the series if you have any interest in it. Okay, so you've been warned. I do find it interesting that as Loki and Sylvie face the void, the void that we would say would be the void that one experiences as they follow the sort of natural, the the implications of naturalism, to the most logical extent, that deep sense of despair and nihilism, that it's all random, chaotic, pointless. There's all sorts of problems with the naturalist frame. That is one faces the void, just like Loki and Sylvie face the void, the void that there's supposedly nothing beyond, that the way that they get beyond the void and defeat Elioth, that, that monster who consumes all and keeps them from crossing beyond the void, is explicitly by enchanting the monster. And I want to credit my, my, my dear friend John Mark McMillan for bringing that symbolic connection to my attention. He reached out right after and said, did you see this? And I, he's seeing these connections. So uh, kudos to John Mark for bringing that out. Now, check this out, right? So those of you who have seen this already, how is it that Sylvie and Loki transcend the void? Sylvie can only transcend the void. She can only get beyond the void to see what's true by enchanting the void with images that are true. Sylvia's power of, Sylvie's power of enchantment only allows her to present images that are true, which is quite the symbolic picture that the way they get beyond the void is not by fighting it. Uh, they, they can't defeat it that way. They have to enchant it with what's true. So Loki and Sylvie, they transcend the void, that monster of nihilistic despair, by re-enchantment of the truth, contra Loki's typical MO, right? Loki's typical MO has been to deceive using illusion. That's what Loki is. He's the trickster god. But instead of deception, instead of illusion, they pass beyond the void with a re-enchantment of the truth. Man, what, what a cool picture. And I, again, I love these films and shows. I'm not trying to be a fundamentalist youth pastor saying, you better stop watching this stuff. That's not what this talk is about. Instead, what I'm trying to highlight is that when the you don't need a why will just give you a material how narrative of the secular age 
leads people into crippling despair. It leads them to meaning crisis. It leads them to the void. The Gnostic myth will be an appealing option, and it has been an increasingly appealing option in our culture. I believe we've seen manifestations of this neo-Gnosticism and deep suspicions of imminence and, and deep suspicions in the inherent goodness of creation with all of its matter, flesh, and blood, its discernible patterns of science and math. We've seen these all over Western culture. I want to conclude today by talking about a few of these visible manifestations of neo-Gnosticism in our cultural moment. The first example of a sort of red-pilling of imminence, a deep suspicion of imminent reality, uh, evidence of the neo-Gnostic narrative in our culture. And in particular, this one would be for those of you that have inhabited, uh, you know, Christian subcultures. The first one to me that, that I want to address is the hyper-charismatic, what might be called third wave, or certain manifestations of what's sometimes called latter rain theology. Now, I don't say this as some sort of heresy hunter. I bring this up as a, someone that was a deep, deep insider into the hyper-charismatic, third-wave, latter-rain theology world. I lived in that. I did ministry in that. Um, I did so much. That was my world that I inhabited. And so I speak about this one with deep conviction as someone who lived in that world, saw lots of good there. It's not devoid of good but also saw some very concerning manifestations of Gnosticism in hyper-charismatic, third-wave charismatic theology and culture. These emphases on uh, transcendent mystical experiences, mystical experiences have always been part of the Christian experience, but many of these um, experiences are touted as a sort of, let's escape the matrix. Of course, we have oftentimes, not always, but we certainly have in some charismatic context, and it's bled in to, throughout the evangelical world, really, really unhealthy eschatology focuses on, uh, hyper-focuses on rapture, rapture theology. Again, uh, something that came about only in the last couple of centuries with the advent of dispensationalism where again, the goal is to escape, to transcend, to, to, to not just merely become um, in touch, to, to anchor our imminent experiences in the transcendent God, but to escape the physical world, to escape the material world. So there's a lot of really concerning things in this culture that emphasizes the extreme, the extravagant, and we need this occasionally. We need the wild. We need the fantastical. We need what some might call as the supernatural. But in much of charismatic culture, there's very little room for the mundane. There's very little room for imminence. There's very little room for celebrating 
the simple. This was certainly the case in my experience of that world. Much of the theological narrative and the evangelistic efforts are still centered around not just um, many of the things that we might say are embodied practices like healing, which would be bringing about the kingdom of God in the here and now, certainly one of the good things about charismatic third wave emphases is a focus on the kingdom of God breaking in, but there was much, um, perhaps an even stronger emphases on this simply being, and not in all cases, there's been some changes, but in many cases, this simply being the vehicle to bring people into the secret knowledge that would allow them when they die to go to heaven. Now, again, I think there's been positive changes and reforms in many of these circles, but oftentimes they have not gone through these sorts of theological reforms. And I pray that there's continued reforms so that some, all of what is good about charismatic emphases, and I would say what's good about charismatic emphases is in its best the union of heaven and earth, um, the cultures that take very, very seriously the kingdom of God being for the here and now and not just for some distant future that we will never reach. That's a really valuable emphasis that we need to have in Christian theology and in Christian community. And so that is something good to me that's worth celebrating. I hope that can be clung to and also, you know, that it can be followed to all of its possible conclusions, including not just, you know, the supernatural, miraculous healing of the blind and the sick, but to the care for the least of these, to an emphasis on the goodness of God that we experience in the sciences and in you know, just mundane jobs. Certainly, there can be an implied connection to the meaningful life being a life where you, in some way, shape, or form, divorce yourself from daily tasks, from daily jobs, that you, you, that dissatisfaction you feel like the protagonist in Fight Club or like Neo in The Matrix gets capitalized into giving yourself to vocational ministry, vocational ministry expressed as doing something in a context of a church. Again, I think there's reforms in these areas, but it was certainly part of my younger experience. It was an emphasis on the radical lifestyle of following Jesus. Didn't have a lot of room for everyday living. I'm thankful for friends of mine. Shout out to maybe some of you at Grove Church, the very, very charismatic culture that's been emphasizing everyday living. Way to go, guys. Way to go. Josh and Katie, I bumped into you the other day. <laughs> I hope that you continue, guys. You guys continue to do that. Because these are the kind of reforms that we need so that worship gatherings do not become escape the matrix moments, right? That's, that's not the goal of Christian worship. The second manifestation of neo-Gnosticism that I see brewing in our cultural moment as the secular age heads towards its inevitable end is the psychedelic and shamanistic resurgence. The renewed interest in psychedelics is not merely, it's a total misunderstanding maybe of some in older generations who just look down upon young people as um, perhaps maybe just pursuing these as a, you know, as a as a way to party or something like that. That's that. Those of you that might be disconnected from what's happening in the psychedelic resurgence, 
Uh, let me just tell you, it has, from my vantage point, it has very little to do with just simple party culture. The psychedelic resurgence is by and large part an, a way of escaping the matrix. It's red-pilling. It's following the white rabbit. We see shamanistic resurgences, uh, the resurgence of shamanistic practices, and typically some sort of um, interpenetrating, or maybe um, maybe a better word might be codependent uh, mingling of psychedelic practice and shamanistic rituals, like ancient, old shamanistic rituals. There are people that travel to um, see see shamans in Central America and South America, these who do these, you know, animalistic, ancient, spiritualistic, shamanistic practices in corporation with psychedelic ingestion. And there it's a very, very popular thing for people in the West who are upwardly mobile, maybe in the sort of educated elite class to do this. We see this happening with people in Silicon Valley. We, I've, you know, I, there's a growing interest in this. Why? Again, this whole, each one of these probably deserve their own episode to break down each one of these. I certainly cannot do justice to the full range of conversation around the psychedelic resurgence. I certainly have had conversations in the past about this. I think of Adam Russell. I think of Paul Reese's story in... Um, what did we entitle that episode? Reconstruction Stories. So you can go back and listen to Paul Reese's story. He's just finishing a book called The Psychedelic Christian. Shout out to Paul. Be interesting to see what that book turns out to be like. Um, we see these this interest, and you talk to a guy like Paul, uh, who lived it and went through it, who grew up in a Christian home but still felt haunted by a deep need for transcendence. Psychedelics was not just about partying. It was about escaping the matrix. It was about finding transcendence beyond imminence, breaking through the ceiling of the imminent frame. And this is, this is I am not saying that, um, you know, there might not ever be some good God-intended purpose for any sort of psychoactive substance. I'm not dismissing that entirely. I'm also not giving an endorsement of it. I'd like to weigh out. I think more research needs to be done on poten potential medicinal benefits. We've talked about all of those things before. But what I do have concerns about is the psychedelic and shamanistic resurgence being attached to a sort of neo-gnosticism. That's what, be, what is actually driving it is a lack of satisfaction with eminence, which again, you, should be, you shouldn't have a lack of satisfaction if you're only inhabiting a story that says the, the only thing that is real is what's imminent. People that are going on these psychedelic trips, anytime you listen to Joe Rogan, he seems like he bring, brings it up. I, I don't think I've listened to Joe Rogan much since his move to Spotify, but I'm sure he's still probably talking about psychedelics. They do, people who have these experiences self report very, very little do they sell, very little do they report that they believe what they went through was just some sort of hallucination, purely hallucination, uh, a projection of their own material minds. Uh, certainly, those who have had meaningful psilocybin trips yeah, talk about and 
connections with God, uh, connections with that meta-divine realm, a spiritual realm, a certainly deep and lasting sense of transcendence. And so there, this, this is a very interesting thing to see re, resurging at this time, and I see it as a symptom of the death of secularity. People who are tired, people who are burned out, people who are in meaning crisis and are looking for meaning in transcendence. And I don't know quite yet what to make of psychedelics. I'm still working my way through what to think about it in its entirety. I'm reluctant about them. And I think that's probably the proper posture to be reluctant first as a new thing emerges. I'm not entirely dismissive. But what I will say from those who I've talked to about it and the reading I've done and some of the scientific literature that's out there is that these do seem to act as instant elevators to a state of consciousness that we would say most who would experience it would say is spiritual and transcendent. Whether or not an instant elevator into that realm is always for our good, I have suspicions of, especially as someone who was uh, a history major in undergrad and was deeply fascinated by ancient civilizations and some of the use of psychedelics in ancient civilizations where they for some reason got the idea that they should sacrifice other humans. I think there's interesting connections there. I also know plenty of anecdotes where those who have tried to escape the imminent frame via psychedelics have met entities on their trips that have not been positive or felt the, uh, filled them with a sense of good. I saw a highlight the other day, um, actress, I forget her name is, uh, something, some famous actress, I think it was Megan Fox, and the headline reported that Megan Fox had a psychedelic trip in which she expressed that she felt like she was in hell for eternity. There's something there. There's something that we, I think, had um, good reason to maybe pursue with a, a sense of caution a sense of concern, a sense in which just escaping the imminent frame, and I'm going to talk about reasons why momentarily, but just trying to escape the imminence and be, be enchanted by anything might not be the proper response. The third manifestation I want to talk about of neo-Gnosticism is in anti-science counterculture. I think science is, a, is obviously a community collaborative effort. Our sense experiences require collaboration and corroboration in community to verify the results of our tested hypotheses. And so science is an ever-evolving discipline where we are challenging the findings of the past. That's all good. But there has been this interesting resurgence of anti-science counterculture, suspicion of science, suspicion of basic sciences. I mean, if we can even divorce for a moment the the connections to um, the connections to all the political implications of this, but we've lived through much of this with the recent uh, the recent you know COVID pandemic, um, anti science counterculture. It's an interesting phenomenon, one that's birthed out of a sense in which fundamentally there is a distrust of general revelation, a distrust that perhaps um, our material processes by which we, the material processes that we can discern 
using reason, uh, using our empirical senses and corroboration in community might not be uh, open enough. Perhaps we should open up to other methods of intuiting remedies and all sorts of stuff. I don't want to dismiss all that, but there certainly has been an increasing distrust, this anti-science counterculture that we've especially seen over the last couple of years uh, as the pandemic uh, talks about vaccinations, all that stuff. It's an interesting sign to me of fissures or cracks in the secular story. The next one is QAnon conspiracy culture. We've definitely talked about conspiracy culture, the QAnon conspiracy culture at length. But there's probably few places where you can see a more direct, uh, more direct connection to matrix connections, matrix symbolism than in QAnon culture. You can literally find um, people in QAnon circles wearing white rabbit shirts, making white rabbit symbols. The connections are really, really clear, especially when you replace things like the machines and the agents with a, a global Illuminati. This distrust of general revelation this distrust of the inherent goodness of God's created order, and even God's, the, the distrust of God's sovereignty acting in the world, um, leads us to question everything. So this following the white rabbit, the suspicion of imminence, trying to find a way out of the imminent frame can make itself manifest in hyper-conspiracy culture. The last two I, would, I want to highlight is the living in a simulation, sort of Silicon Valley religion. I'm just surprised at how much uptick and interest there's been in this sort of, we live in a simulation. Um, what else produces that but a sense in which they are, uh, someone is dissatisfied with imminence and feels like there has to be some sort of higher, truer layer of reality. And finally, video game VR escapism. I'm not anti-video games as much as my son thinks I am, but there is a serious sense in which video games and virtual reality, especially as it improves, is leading people to a sense of escapism, to uh, techno-shamanism is even a very real feature of our modern age. People exploring meaning and purpose beyond the world of their sense, well, it's still a sense experience, but beyond the material world into a virtual world. Uh, it's an interesting form of, in some ways, you'd think it's plugging into the matrix more. But I think this is certainly driven by a sense of dissatisfaction with imminence. So if we can't find it in the imminent world, in what some philosophers have called the phenomenological world, and we're not sure about the noumenal, the spiritual, then perhaps what we can do is essentially create our own worlds of meaning and completely immerse ourselves in them. And that, to me, is, again, signs of dissatisfaction with the secular age. As long as following the right white rabbit doesn't mean escaping our senses, escaping reason, escaping imminence, but, you know, if following the white rabbit means reconnecting them and integrating them, integrating our senses and reason and imminence uh, with the transcendent, then I'm down for the hunt. But if it means denying the goodness of general revelation, living in constant anxiety and fear that secret wicked powers are pulling the string, strings of every domain of life, if it means constantly trying to escape the world instead of indwelling it and transforming it, then the magic world that this white rabbit brings us to is an illusion still. At its worst, 
It is an illusion of dark magic. And when we've deeply craved the slightest glimpse of magic our entire lives while living in a story that says that magic isn't real, there's a real concern for me that those who come under the spells of dark magic are not even aware that not all magic is good. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode of Deep Talks, exploring theology and meaning making. Again, this podcast is made possible because of generous support from listeners just like you who support this podcast over on Patreon. You'll find a link in the description of this podcast if that's something you're interested in doing. Uh, We're trying to get to the first tier of having 300 patrons, and when we get to that point, we'll be able to sustain, sustain weekly episodes. There's a bunch of additional perks for those that might be interested in going deeper in some of this material and content. Things like bonus Q&A episodes. We also do a monthly Zoom call for those that want to do a group discussion on some of this stuff, as well as opportunities if you want to do a one-on-one Zoom call to work through whatever things you might be processing in theology, your faith, philosophy, all, all sorts of stuff. So there's all, all those options are available for you over on my Patreon page. There's also a discussion forum for today's episode. And pretty much all of our episodes started doing this about maybe six, seven months ago. So not every single episode in the past, but these discussion forums have been great. Um, They're just a place for you to, similar to like a Facebook post or something, but without all of the, you know, crazy input from all sorts of people on Facebook that might not have um, maybe the the sensibilities (laughs) to engage respectfully and and with civil discourse on such important subjects. So this is a better place, I think, a more controlled atmosphere, a place where people really share the value of charity, charitable dialogue together, and they've been really helpful. So that's a great place for you to post your questions, your objections, any concerns you have with anything I said today. I'd love to hear all of it. And it's a great way to hear from other people, to connect with other people. Uh, to learn from other people as well. So again, you can check out the discussion forum on my Patreon for uh, Patreon page as well. Finally, one last, last ask of you would be to subscribe and review this podcast on wherever you d- listen, wherever you subscribe, but especially over on Apple Podcasts, as it's still the number one place people go to to discover new podcasts. And if you think this podcast is of value, it may be of value to someone else who has no idea that it exists. So maybe you can help them find it just by leaving a review and a ranking or a rating, and that improves the the algorithmic possibilities of this being discovered by someone else. So thank you all. I look forward to hearing your feedback, your comments. If you can't quite commit to the Patreon thing, totally understandable. You can try reaching out to me on Twitter or on Instagram at Paul Anleitner. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.